A crisis is something that's meant to launch everyone into action. It happens when a problem becomes so huge, disastrous, and immediately threatening that it can't be ignored. In Canada, we hear the word crisis used in the context of housing and homelessness on a daily basis. Across the political spectrum, among academics and activists alike, while the solutions proposed may differ, everyone agrees that housing affordability demands immediate action. It's in this context that the Balanced Supply of Housing, or BSH, research node was created. The Balanced Supply of Housing node is part of a larger network that was funded by Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation to advance knowledge in housing. So our node is made up of academics and community partners who are particularly interested in urban areas. And our focus is to address the sort of imbalance in housing outcomes for people in major metropolitan areas in Canada. This is Penny Gerstein, University of British Columbia professor and principal investigator for the BSH Node. We call it the balanced supply of housing because what we're hoping for is in our research to demonstrate opportunities where innovative solutions could be done that could rebalance the the real inequities that are incurring in our housing system right now. We have two main focus areas. We're concerned about reshaping the financialization of housing. And, And in that, we want to look at how to combat the rising investment of housing that contributes to inequalities in wealth accumulation, as well as sort of precariousness of tenure for renters. And then the second focus area is looking at innovating and responsive land practices. So we're not just looking at land use, but we want to look at how our cultural perceptions around how to use land has really precipitated a certain kind of pattern on our cities that is really inhibiting the opportunities for innovative solutions. What we're particularly interested in is how do you actually move forward? So how do you innovate in land practices? How do you reshape the financialization of housing? It's not an easy task, but what we're trying to do is work with academics and community partners to identify what really needs to be done if we want to have an equitable housing system. This is The Overhead, understanding Canada's affordable housing crisis. In this four-part special presentation, we will examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. First, Let's meet two people from the team at the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. 
My name is Marika Albert. I'm a policy director at BC Nonprofit Housing Association. I oversee our education, policy, and research department. And my name is Andres Peñalosa. I'm the senior policy analyst. I support Marika in many projects, especially related to research and advocacy. Their association represents nonprofit housing providers across the province. Through policy, advocacy, research, and resources, they further the goal of affordable housing across BC. And so how does the work that you do there contribute to the balanced supply of housing node? We are the community partner for the project. So that was an important element of the way that CMHC and uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council set the program up was that there would be a community partners as parts of these projects. So we kind of bring in that perspective. We bring in the connection to our members and we also help inform the node around what is going to be meaningful and uh, helpful for our members. We bring the BC nonprofit perspective because there are other nonprofit community members to the node, especially in Montreal and Toronto. And we also help uh, mobilize knowledge for and from our members to these discussions that are mostly taking place in academic environments. I think a lot of people, when we debate about the housing crisis, will say that, you know, if we just get out of the market's way, that it's a supply problem. And if there's enough supply, then, you know, it'll meet the demands and prices will go down. I'm going to go ahead and guess that that is not the perspective of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. <laughs> and I was hoping you could uh, confirm that and maybe explain why that's it's not such a simple fix. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things is that there has been, you know, over the past 20 or 30 years, we've, we've seen the experiment uh, around the market supposedly providing us with the housing that we need. And we know that it's a failed experiment. But the, the market can't actually build and provide the type of housing that we need for folks. People are probably familiar with the fact that there's not a lot of regulation in the market in terms of pricing, not only in the for um purchasing housing, but also in the rental market as well. And so we don't have a highly regulated market, which means that it's never going to provide the supply that we need. It's profit driven. And the type of supply we need is actually for individuals and families and, and people who can't actually afford market prices. And to me, that is like a huge signal that the market actually doesn't work to provide us with the housing we need. You know, another piece of, of evidence that we, we look to as well is that we've made some policy decisions in the last 20 or 30 years that have also created the situation that we're in right now as well. They did not help and, and certainly contributed to it. So, I mean, even far back as the 70s in British Columbia, when we saw the introduction of the Condominium Act, what that created was an environment where developers saw it was much more uh, profitable to develop condominiums than it was to develop purpose-built rental buildings. And the purpose-built rental buildings at that time were subsidized through tax breaks and other incentive programs through the federal government. Um, and then, you know, later on uh, in, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, we saw a shift at the federal level where essentially investment in social housing programming pretty much came to a, a grinding halt. And we didn't see investment really at the level that we needed to, to keep up with population and changing demographics. And so what we're seeing now is a need to, to catch up to lack of investment. 
In uh, 2017, we released a report called the Affordable Housing Plan for BC, which is actually helped really inform the NDP's 30-point plan for housing. And in that, we estimated that we needed about 80,000 rental units built over the next 10 years to address backlog only. So I'm not talking about like addressing, you know, units that we need now, right? Is this is like we didn't build for so long that we need an additional 80,000 units to actually meet kind of meet current demand. And then we need to build an additional 70,000 units over the next 10 years to actually really address the problem. What would it take to get buy-in from the various levels of government for these kinds of policies that, as you said, used to exist in in various capacities? I mean, I think the way that it's going now across the country, it's very difficult, I think, for politicians at any level to completely ignore the housing crisis and pretend it doesn't exist because it is just impacting so much of the electorate. We are seeing a bit of a shift across jurisdictions here in B.C., And fully at the federal level, too. We have the National Housing Strategy, which has its challenges, but also, you know, it does signal that the federal government is focused on housing. We now have a federal housing minister, which we haven't seen since, I think, the 50s. So we do see some political signals that there are some policy changes happening. We're seeing an expansion of the co-investment fund at the federal level, which is going to be helpful. The creation of something called an accelerator fund. Uh, to support municipalities to help advance the development of affordable housing in their communities. We've seen some provincial level policy changes as well that really tackle challenges on the ground and the municipal level. So around land use planning and some of those kinds of roadblocks that happen when it comes to the actual development process. And we have seen higher levels of investment in social housing and, and, and now in co-ops as well. So we, we are seeing a bit of a shift. Is it going to solve the crisis? Probably not. However, it's a matter of going, okay, these are this, can we, can we push them a little bit further? Can we, can we open up that even more? So our job as, as advocates is to, to, to continue to kind of challenge the provincial and federal governments to, to look and see what they can actually provide, then make some policy decisions that are, are really meaningful. Yeah. And I just want to sort of tie that up to the balance of life housing note. I think that's where we can see actually cautious optimism (laughs) that Mariko was saying, because it's not only investments in actually production of of housing, which might take, there's major roadblocks uh, on the way, but there's also through these kinds of programs like the House, like the Balance of Lab Housing Node and, and the whole Canadian Housing Research Network, there's an aim to produce evidence based solutions that it may actually direct funds and any kinds of development and, and funding available towards the best solutions, which I think that's where well our role as, as nonprofit as non nonprofit representative in the node is it's critical because we need to find solutions outside of the market. We need to make sure that those solutions that the node come up with have an, an actual impact on our sector. You're you're focus is is the province of British Columbia. But when we start to talk about things like a national housing strategy, what what kind of things need to be included when we have that conversation? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things that's actually missing in the national housing strategy right now is an Indigenous focus on 
um, off-nation Indigenous housing. No, the majority of Indigenous folks in Canada actually live off-nation. Off in fact, uh, the Canada Housing and Renewal Association, which is kind of the umbrella, our umbrella organization, we belong to it. They do uh, housing, nonprofit-related housing advocacy at the federal level. Um, their Indigenous caucus has been calling for a rural, a northern, and uh, urban Indigenous housing strategy we're talking about housing. We're talking about housing on stolen land. We're not acknowledging that colonial relationship. And I think it's important to address that in a federal document like that. So that's just one thing I think that really needs to be considered. That's not. We also need to, I mean, I would like to see more of an investment in social housing itself. You know, there's a lot of market incentives and that's fine. But I think we need to actually build up our own public assets. And those assets need to be protected from the market and they need to be protected from the market through them being part of the nonprofit housing and community housing sector, um, because then we can we have the mechanisms to be able to insulate our housing to some degree from the market, which I think is an important element we need to consider. So, you know, those are a couple of things that I think needs to be considered. I also and this is perhaps my own personal bias. But I do think that there's still too much of a focus on the market and enabling private sector in the national housing strategy. And there's too much of a focus, in my opinion, on ownership and how do we have affordable home ownership and attainable home ownership. And what does this mean? And, and, uh, and I know this is, can be controversial, but I'm like, why are we subsidizing people to own homes? Why are we doing public investment in that? And we're not investing those public dollars into building more affordable housing for people. Andres, do you feel that way too? I mean, for the last couple of decades, home ownership has been seen as a, a pseudo retirement policy, as an investment, uh, a way to, to cash in early and cash out big later. I can't imagine that that really helps the work that you do and, and moving ahead the idea that everyone deserves to have some kind of good quality housing. Yeah, exactly. And just to add to Marika's point, e even solutions within the market can address affordability issues and target other kinds of people not looking for ownership, maybe renters, low end of the market renter. So it's not that we are aiming, because it's unreal, to totally separate ourselves from the market and its ability and, and muscle to produce housing. Uh, but it's just the shift of who's getting the most benefit, who needs this public investment the most. And I think that's hopefully in, an, in a new version, <laughs> in a revision yeah. of the <laughs> housing strategy. Yeah. We can see those kinds of tweaks that sort of shift the attention towards the people who need the most that investment. If we can all agree we need to build more housing, the obvious follow-up question for cities is, well, where do we put it? Municipal zoning laws and building regulations are the product of years of changing jurisdictions, demographics, and social attitudes about what an ideal neighborhood really is. In some ways, these rules and attitudes make it difficult or impossible to build certain types of housing in large swaths of Canadian cities. The result is that many people are kept out of certain neighborhoods, while the neighborhoods themselves are often decreasing in population, becoming even more unaffordable, or failing to support their aging population. McGill University's Nick Luca 
who is academic co-chair at the BSH, explains. Uh, so Nick, you're, you're working for the BSH node on a project called Toward Abolition of R1 Zoning and the Two Aggress Straightjacket. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you to address the, the title of that in two parts. First, maybe you can explain for listeners R1 zoning. It's it's something that affects every city, uh, but they might call it something different, uh, sometimes stable neighborhoods or the yellow belt, uh, d- depending on, on uh, where you're from. So c- can you unpack what, what is R1 zoning and, and why do we need to abolish it? Yes, that's a very good uh, starting point. So it's jargon, obviously, R1. And it's jargon that's the official designation in most municipal regulatory frameworks, uh, the R stands for residential, and uh, it's called R1 because uh, it's basically considered to be the natural or primary category of housing, which is single detached housing, single detached units, each building housing only one household or one family. And it's been widely recognized, you know, across uh, North America, but in, in other parts of the world as one of the major problems in terms of diversity and affordability of housing, because quite literally it says the only kind of housing that can be permitted on huge swaths of territory is a kind of housing that is actually very expensive and very difficult, or if it's illegal to adapt it, then the adaptations are not going to happen. And it's a very artificial category that really only became normalized and widespread after the Second World War as part of the sort of suburban deployment of population and work in Canada. And it's deeply problematic because it freezes neighborhoods and housing in the aggregate in a, in a single state, whereas historically almost every human settlement has seen a mix of different housing forms and typologies that you know convert are converted to from a single detached house to a, a unit containing three smaller units, a building containing three smaller units, they get reconverted into large detached houses. So it's just an example of a regulatory measure that literally puts a straitjacket or entombs uh, housing in ice and thwarts what could be argued as a very healthy and natural way in which human settlements evolve. And the punchline on that is that a number of major municipalities across North America have actually abolished R1 zoning. They have said, after you know considerable debate, this is something that we can do easily, and it's something that needs to be done if we're going to actually free up the housing sector to allow for incremental production of different kinds of housing units that will meet the needs of different households. When people say this is something that they can do easily, I imagine that it doesn't take into account the political will because often there is a very loud contingent of people, uh, and I I won't use the various monikers for this contingent of people, but uh, they push very strongly against any change to this kind of zoning. And often the argument I hear is, well, why do we have to touch these neighborhoods? Why do we have to let them change when... If you're worried about the supply of housing, well, they're building towers downtown all the time. Yeah, that's it. So it, it's easy in the technical sense and uh, that there's there's one button that we can press on the, let's say, the control panel of public policy mm-hmm. and and we'll, we'll have significant changes. But it is far from easy, uh, as you say, in the political sense, in terms of social acceptability. And 
there are many, many cultural reasons for that, and they're completely understandable. The first one is just the the fear of change that, that is almost inherent to the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second one that's really important is that there's been such a cultural normalization of single detached houses as a desirable and stable and good way in which we should be in the world that there's fear that if we open up these fabrics, these neighborhoods, these these contexts, everything will go to hell in a handbag, right? right? That we'll, we'll lose all the sort of stability and human happiness that they represent and that have been achieved. So there's a lot of uh, resistance, which is which is understandable, but it's often based on, well, without putting too fine a point on it, it's, it's really based on fear-mongering and, frankly, uh, a way of othering anyone who doesn't have the wherewithal and or the interest in owning a detached dwelling. So I think it's it's deeply problematic because it, it 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 says that change is not possible, even if we see that with the affordability crisis uh, and the intergenerational transfer of wealth and, and life chances, things are, are really bad right now. And then vis-a-vis your second point, I think it is really important that there's this tendency to say, why does it need to be here that change happens when there are so many other places where change could happen? And the response that I have to that is that the change that can happen in other contexts has by and large happened already. Mm -hmm. So we're at capacity, so to speak, and or the options for producing high quality residential environments have been exhausted or never existed because it's not very good in experiential terms. And one could argue in, in very basic sort of human well-being terms to have lots of tall buildings on busy arterial roads. It's better to have what is called soft densification in neighborhoods where there is a lot of good public space. There is a lot of greenery. There are, uh, you know, parks and other amenities for all sorts of reasons from how safe it is to move around on the street, how noisy it is when you're inside your dwelling but also uh, things like the urban heat island effect, which uh, if you have tall buildings on roads with a lot of traffic, whether that's car traffic or buses and you know public transport, you're going to have a concentration of heat and point source pollution. And those are all health uh, concerns as well as well-being concerns. So that's just to say, we, you know, of course, we could super densify other places. But the argument that, that we're making in this project and that is very widely shared is that a more equitable and sustainable and just and feasible way of actually addressing the uh, the housing supply problem is to allow gentle or soft densification to take place where there's already an enormous capacity in terms of infrastructure and space for more people to enjoy the quality of these, these stable neighborhoods. The second portion of this project is a little more granular. So I was hoping you could explain what the two egress straitjacket is, what what that means, and how it affects supply right now. So um, the the coding in the title there, where we say the second egress, is a reference to a, a rule and a technical detail of how residential architecture works or how architecture works. And egress is a is a, a means of exit, a means of getting in and out of a unit, a building, a room, an office, etc. And there is a rule in the building code which says that when you have more than one dwelling unit in a building, 
there must be two means of egress. There must be two ways in which the members of a household, of a unit, of an apartment, can exit from their dwelling out to the street or out of their building. And it's a fire-related regulation, and it arose and was codified in the early 20th century and mid-20th century in Canada in response to a number of terrible accidents, terrible uh, catastrophes, mm-hmm. um, many of which were actually in workplaces, in factories, where there were there were deaths because people did not have access to the single staircase or the single exit route that was available. So we've overcompensated in terms of what the regulations allow when you have multiple units, uh, multiple residential units, many apartments, by requiring that there be two staircases. And, and then they have to be two staircases, right? They can't be that you can leave via a window or uh, via uh, uh, you know, a door that, that opens onto a balcony. So the work that we're doing on this second egress, which is moving along very nicely, is to assemble the empirical evidence that, in fact, there have been very few fires, if any, in the last 50 years, in which the loss of life, if it happened, had anything to do with the lack of a second stairway. So there's there's quite a bit of, of, of work that's been done around North America to demonstrate that the second egress is an unnecessary measure. And that's not to say that we should treat it lightly. There's no chance of treating it lightly because although we're moving along very nicely with this project and we've submitted a number of major reports to key stakeholders, the big work is going to be submitting a dossier to the federal agencies that oversee the National Building Code. And we're hoping that we can get it onto the agenda for the revision to the National Building Code that will take place and take effect in 2025. There's a chance that we won't be able to get it onto the agenda soon enough and that if this change is seriously considered, it won't take effect until 2030 because of the timeline on which the National Building Code gets updated. But if the code is updated in time, that means that more dense typologies can be more easily constructed across Canada? That's exactly it. That we can move to more dense typologies that are in fact quite widespread in in towns and cities across Canada, but are only built before the Second World War, basically. And again, this is another empirical proof, right? We do not have regular cases where people are injured or facing death because of this particular detail of the configuration of their buildings. So definitely it opens up a whole bunch of possibilities in terms of construction, especially in terms of affording housing construction that is not as expensive because we can build in simple balloon frame wood materials that can be done up to five or six stories quite readily especially with some other reforms to regulations and norms that have been taking place, instead of having to use poured concrete. So as soon as you move to poured concrete construction, construction costs jump up enormously, and those costs inevitably have to be passed on to the households who eventually occupy dwellings. And then in addition to that, we're quite literally making the housing more affordable because we're creating more space within the units because the space that would be and that is now required to be occupied by a second staircase can be used for other things that are more directly of use to the household. It can be as much as a second bedroom or third bedroom, or at the very least, some other usable space within the unit. So that you know translates into a lower per square meter cost, whether it's for renting or for owner occupation. So that phase of the project, you you have a pretty defined goal and you're racing towards a deadline. The other, in terms of changing attitudes about uh, residential zoning, that seems like a more holistic 
more long-term strategy, which uh, I believe involves a sort of crowdsourcing urban design and, and maybe changing minds for people whose minds need to be changed and maybe giving people the tool to advocate for the kind of housing that they wish to see in their municipalities. Is that sort of the idea? Yes, that's that's a very uh, good expression of what we're aiming to do. So the uh, two egress project, we're moving toward submitting a detailed dossier in June of 2022. And then as for the soft densification, the more holistic approach that we're taking, because there is social and political concern around opening up R1 neighborhoods, around making parts of towns and cities and suburbs that have got primarily or only detached housing, we're developing a whole suite of, of crowdsourcing tools, which are going to help the average person visualize and think uh, more closely about what this kind of soft densification would mean in a familiar context for them. So we've literally identified a series of very typical suburban fabrics or suburban neighborhoods in each of the three major metropolitan areas, so in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. And we're creating what are hopefully going to be very user-friendly visualizations of what simple and soft or gentle densification would look like so that people understand we're not proposing to build 20-story towers next to your bungalow. We're proposing minor changes that visually will not be that important and that will not take away from the other sorts of qualities that people cherish in these sort of mature and or stable neighborhoods. So what we're going to be doing is in the spring or the winter, the spring of this year, we're going to be launching a, a website that invites people to participate and to indicate their level of comfort with various sorts of densification or change scenarios in these sort of familiar contexts. And we're trying to make that fun and engaging so that it doesn't become this sort of technical exercise where we're trying to draw people into formal architectural and and planning and design conversation spaces but rather you know here's a picture what would you rather see in your street the canadian housing landscape is volatile that's a given trying to bring balance will require a mixed bag of research advocacy and market and policy solutions it is a huge and holistic undertaking that requires everyone's participation. But we're facing a crisis, and a crisis is a call to action. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the Balanced Supply of Housing Node. The Node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighbourhoods and communities. The Balanced Supply of Housing Node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Be sure to tune in to part two of The Overhead in April when we look at how to scale up non-market housing. <laughs>